Welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Legal Basics 2, Part 1, Mandatory Reporting and Education. We hope you review the materials that were sent, or you can visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome everyone to KCADV Certification Series. Today we're talking about legal basics. We're in part two, section one. Um, I have Meg Savage here, who is the legal counsel for KCADV. And today we're going to be talking about mandatory reporting and education. So big things happened a few years ago, switching that law, House Bill 309. Is that correct? That's right, Diane. Um, So for many years in Kentucky, we had a law that um, was a universal mandatory reporting of spouse abuse law that basically said everybody in the state, if they had reason to believe someone was being abused or neglected by their spouse, was required to report that to the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. That was problematic at the time uh, it was passed. The intent was to make sure that there was no longer, you know, this silence about domestic violence and that it be kept hidden and that even when people knew about it, you know, nothing would really get done about it. And so what we found was happening was that when professionals were required, you know, to report spouse abuse, then that could have a really chilling effect on the individual because there's so many um, potentially negative fallouts from a report being made to DCBS. Also, from the time that the law was first passed decades ago, there's been, you know, the growth of our regional system of domestic violence programs across the state, and that wasn't in existence back then. So really the job of taking care of survivors has switched from DCBS to our regional programs. And, you know, for many survivors who were reported and then contacted by DCBS, they were just simply referred to their local domestic violence program for services. So we also found out that professionals as well, many of them were uncomfortable with having to make that report, especially in the mental health care field or perhaps just a a regular physician, because it could have a really damaging effect on the trust that the patient has for their provider. So there were a variety of reasons why it seemed like it was time to change that law. So several years ago, the law was changed from a mandatory reporting of spouse abuse to requiring um, mandatory um, giving of educational material and information by certain professionals when they were dealing with somebody in their professional life who they thought was experiencing dating violence or domestic violence. So it was a broader category of individuals. It was a really difficult thing for me to shake off. I have to say, when I started in this work, we had just started, passed the law. Kentucky, I think, was the first state or one of the first states to have mandatory reporting. And so we were coming up with really trying to bring domestic violence, intimate partner violence up to the forefront. And being a new advocate, you know, I was sort of caught up in that wave of, you know, we're having the conversation, we're opening up shelters, we're starting our, you know, protective order legislation 
organizations and lots of things were happening and mandatory reporting to me just made sense. It was the community cares. And we often know that victims sometimes are unable to reach out for help and they're often suffering in silence. But I'm so glad that you said that the times have changed, right? And so um, there were some unintended consequences. A lot of folks got caught up into a system that they had really difficult time getting out. As we know that domestic violence is in terms of power and control, it was again sort of taking away power and control away from victims. And they were sort of placed into a reporting a situation that was not maybe the most health, helpful. And then there are so many other services now where people can reach out to a domestic violence shelter because at the time, I don't know if it was recent or if it even was done. There now is a domestic violence program in every area development district. And as this was sort of being built, services were a little more fractured for folks. So I think we've sort of learned how to respond in a much more um, holistic way than sort of this over, we're going to report and we know what's best and we need to step into a person's family life. Is that sort of a fair assessment? Yes. uh, Before the law was changed, we did do some research. Um, We asked for information from the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. And the year that we were looking at um, that they gave us, I think, was 2012. And they had approximately 40,000 reports of possible spouse abuse or neglect. Most of those reports come from police officers who are responding to a domestic violence call. Many of them come also from physicians or from mental health care uh, providers. Out of those 40,000 possible instances of spouse abuse or neglect, the cabinet was only able to contact 20,000 of those individuals. And if you think about it, you know, nowadays and, you know, in the past as well, people are very mobile, especially if they're in a state of crisis. Most of us now rely on our cell phones. We don't have landlines. So the contact information may not be there or people have a tendency not to pick the phone, pick the call up if it's somebody that they don't know calling. I do that. Yeah, yeah I yeah. do that as well. And so out of those 20,000 that the um, cabinet was able to track down, 10,000 of them declined services right off the bat, which they were able to do. And you think, okay, so, you know, 10,000 people wanted services. And so the cabinet must have been working a lot of cases. But like I said, most of those cases are simply referred to our local programs. So in that year, October of 2012, I think they had 40, that's 4040 open cases where they were actively helping um, that domestic violence survivor. And it's not that they weren't doing their job. It's just that a new infrastructure had grown up in Kentucky and they were doing what they were supposed to do and making those referrals to our local programs. That was a stunning number. I remember again, when all the data was starting to be collected. And as we often really try to do, let's go um, back to the survivor and hear their experiences as opposed to sitting in this room and feeling, deciding what that we know it is best. So there was a lot of work on going back to survivors and see how how this law and the mandatory reporting um, really was affecting them. And I was stunned at the 40 open cases. It was such a, I think that might've been my eye opening time of one, I, I had concerns a little bit how the cabinet was able to respond 
always concerned about reaching out when it might not be safe to reach out. You know, is the offender getting the information first? Is this is the curtain being exposed to a domestic violence situation and she's not able to make decisions for her safety um, quick enough? But also just the amount of cases that they were able to to work was so negligible that let's give them education. Let's give them information. Let's hook them up to the to the domestic violence advocacy services. Right. And so the law that was passed requires just that. It requires a certain group of professionals to give people who may be experiencing domestic or dating violence and abuse information about about domestic and dating violence, you know, just some general information so that, you know, they have a better understanding maybe of what's happening in their own lives. Because, you know, we do know that survivors don't always recognize this as domestic violence or dating violence. It also requires um, these professionals to give information about how to access our local domestic violence programs and rape crisis centers. And then the third thing is they have to give that patient or the person they're working with information um, just generally about protective orders and how they can find out information about how to access a protective order. It was something that KCADB really took very dear. And so when they were coming in to do either, you know, the certification or the monitoring or coming into different programs, I think all of the 15 programs now um, prominently display on websites and their materials and other avenues that they're connecting with, with survivors and with professionals. These are the things that are required when you provide the education and, and here's some of that information. I think it's always interesting though, as new advocates are probably tuning into this podcast, we tend to forget that these are really new situations that just a few years ago it was mandatory reporting. So you may be getting calls from professionals going, I am bound to give this education. And so we just need to be geared for that. So if you are new in the field, take a little look at that history, take a little look at what the responsibility is of professionals. And are you ready to respond to that? There's really probably nothing worse that gives um, a lack of confidence. If somebody were to call and say, I'm a police officer, I'm determined to, you know, provide the education and then an advocate picks up and goes, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? So, so be, be aware of what our role is in this. We fought really hard. KCADB and member programs fought really hard on this legislation. So we're really proud of the work that House Bill 309 does and, and really for the benefit and the safety of survivors. On the KCADV website, we have a brochure that was uh, put together after the law passed, and it is a simple brochure, but it you know ha- it covers the basic three requirements. And so, in the trainings that we've done since the law passed, we've tried to let as many professionals know that that brochure is available. They can just download it and print it off in their own offices just to have it available for survivors. And, um, you know, obviously every program itself, you know, can offer additional materials, their own brochure, what services they offer, et cetera. So, yeah, um, we're always happy to have advocates help us get the word out that this is a requirement and that local professionals, you know, should be adhering to the law as it is now. 
Wonderful. And so I, one of the things I think that really came up when House Bill 309 was being introduced was talking about child abuse. And so if you're okay, we'll kind of shift to that section. But I think I want to make it really clear that House Bill 309 does nothing to change mandatory reporting of child abuse, that that, that legislation stays exactly the same. This is only dealing with adult survivors of, of intimate partner violence. Yes, that's absolutely correct. That was the only thing that this law changed. I really, you know, um, wanted to talk about this section a little bit because I think it's one of the areas that probably, especially again, newer advocates, but even really seasoned advocates get really concerned about reporting child abuse. We know at one end we we are um, there to hold the confidentiality and hold the space and hold the trust of our adult survivors, the non-offending um, parent. But we we often know that there might be things going on in the home and we really worry about the children. And there's always a little bit of that balance of is the reporting of this going to hinder the outcome of the child and or the non-offending parent? Again, we sort of lose that trust when it goes into another system. We're breaking that confidentiality, my words, but we're, we're beginning to bring in other agencies. We just sort of stop for a minute and pause. We don't want to do anything that could jeopardize the well-being of a kid, but I don't think we report easily if we don't have to. Um, so there's a lot of sort of looking in on, you know, what is what is in the best scenario of of the family and the children. Yeah, that, it's always a tricky question and it's never a comfortable thing to have to make that report. The easiest situation is where the survivor wants you to make the report and you can, you know, involve the survivor in that reporting. But more often than not, it's something where the survivor has told you or let slip, you know, something that starts raising red flags for you. Or it could be somebody that's in shelter or in housing and an advocate comes to know about a situation where they're starting to think, you know, wow, is this possibly child abuse? Is it child neglect? Um, and the third category is child dependency. And is that something that I have to report? And I guess, you know, the bottom line is, you know, if you have reason to believe that a child is abused, neglected, or dependent, then you do have a statutory duty to report that. You can make that report to the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. They have a hotline that you can call. Or you're also able to make the report to local law enforcement or the state police or to the local prosecutor's office. But ultimately, it is going to end up with DCBS and they may or may not, you know, open up a child protective services case. And as we know, those can have just really negative ramifications um, for the survivor. And, you know, often it's not the survivor who's done anything to the child or neglected the child, but because there's, you know, abuse between the adults in the home, then DCBS will step in and say, oh, this child is at risk and either threaten to remove the child or they will remove the child. And then the survivor has to start that long journey of working a case plan, you know, trying to do everything that the cabinet wants that person to do in order to reunite with the child. And if things really go south, it could end up with a termination of parental rights case. I think as you, as again, as you're listening to this and you're beginning to sort of ground yourself in this work, 
always let folks know that you are a mandatory reporter of child abuse. It's a critical as you're beginning to build trust with that individual so that they are freely sharing, giving information um, that they are comfortable doing. If something does slip or something overtly is said, I'm really worried about this. And it is a point where a CPS report does need to be made. Look with your own program and certainly talk with the director of your program. But I would imagine most folks really like us to try to walk that process along with that victim. So be as transparent as you possibly can. Because you said this, I am bound to have to report this to the cabinet. I am still your advocate. I will still work with you through this process. We can work through the calling. You can sit with me while we're calling if that's possible, if that's feasible. I can help you work your goal plan. We can do this as a team. And I know sometimes that might seem bizarre that now you've just reported to CPS and this person is going to want you to be their ally through this process. But from my experience, it usually is what happens. You know, there's the initial reaction to a report needing to be made but they need someone to kind of work this process with them. And so we can really be great stewards as, again, as goal plans are being made, are we making sure that that goal plan is supportive of the non-offending parent and the child, that we're looking at them as a unit and that the attention of the violence is on the offending parent, if that's the situation, that we can sometimes um, not excuse away, but normalize sometimes behavior of a person experiencing of trauma. So is it possible while this woman is staying at our domestic violence program, we can put some really good safeguards and wraparound services so the child can remain with their parent. So there's lots of things that we can do as advocates along with the CPS report. So, so try not to completely alienate or cut off that uh, relationship that you've built just by fact that maybe that CPS report is really going to hinder that from the beginning. But the way we do it, the approach that we take, um, that we're doing it for the care of the family can really go a long way, I think, in still maintaining that relationship. Yeah. Um, and, you know, truthfully, to have an advocate at your side, that may be the only person that you've got in your corner. You know, if a case proceeds to certain points, you know, then the parent would may you know, get a court-appointed attorney. The quality of legal representation in that process is always very questionable. I mean, there are many good attorneys out there that do that work, but there are also a lot of attorneys that probably don't give it the care that it deserves. And so, like any court proceeding, it can be really mystifying and terrifying, you know, for the parent that's going through that. And I would say, especially for what we refer to as like a non-offending parent, that is a person who's been caught in that trap of, you know, I'm being abused at home by my partner. I know that's not good for my children. But we also know that when the survivor leaves that relationship, you know, that can be a time of a lot of danger. The way our um, family courts are set up, it's really unlikely that the survivor is going to walk away with sole custody of those children and they'll never see the other parent again, even though that parent's been abusive. And I think, you know, survivors know, you know, a lot of these things. And so, you know, it's very sad that somebody should have to have um, their child removed simply because they're experiencing abuse. And, you know, we're hopeful with the latest 
cabinet administration that maybe the DCBS workers are going to be taking a different tack on that and really trying to think about how can we provide those wraparound services to that non-offending parent so that we can keep the parent and child together. They often find themselves in a darned if they do and darned if they don't. They stay in a situation. They're they're putting themselves certainly at risk and children, you know, at risk of being exposed to the violence. But if they leave, you're absolutely right. The guarantee that that child will not go um, for visitation or joint custody um, without that non-offending parent there to kind of keep everybody safe is sadly, that's not an atypical situation. So lots of folks find themselves into a really kind of catch 22 in that experience. Experience. Can we go back a little bit? You talked about dependency, abuse, neglect, and emotional injury. Can you just sort of touch on a little bit, I think, in advocates, lay person's term, but, and I know you're an attorney, so I know you're going to be, I know you're going to be more strict about it, but what exactly is dependency? Like, what would we be looking at to wonder if that would be a CPS report? Well, dependency is basically a situation where The parent, through no fault of their own or nothing that they've done, nothing that they failed to do, isn't able to care for the child adequately. So an example of that might be, say someone's here in Kentucky, you know, they're from another state, they don't have a support system, um, and they have a very young child, maybe a toddler, and then they get a diagnosis that they've got cancer. And they know that they're going to have to go through surgery and they're going to have to go through um, maybe chemotherapy, et cetera. It's going to be very difficult to take care of that toddler. So in that type of situation, they might approach the cabinet and say, I just simply can't care for my child. I have nobody else that I can place the child with temporarily. And so the cabinet might take, you know, temporary custody of that child and place it with a foster family. What we see more often in our world is that the survivor may have some, you know, significant mental health care problem, or maybe they have substance use disorder and they're getting ready to go into, you know, residential rehabilitation. And again, you know, will they be able to care for that child? Is there somebody trustworthy that they can turn the child over to? And, you know, sometimes it's a situation where maybe the survivor isn't even really seeing a clear picture of what's happening. So an example of that, we had a program where the survivor had to use a wheelchair and also was from another country and didn't speak English. And she had a 12-year-old son and used the 12-year-old son as her partner, basically. So he interpreted for her, you know, he did a lot of things that she needed to have done. And, you know, while they were in shelter, that was working okay because there was, you know, this additional safety net of advocates around. But the woman was, you know, thinking about leaving shelter and setting herself up in her own apartment, just she and her son. And so the advocates were very concerned whether, you know, that would put that child in the role of caretaker, really, where the mother wasn't taking care of him, he was taking care of her. So there was a lot of discussion about whether that was something that would need to be reported to the cabinet as a dependency type situation. Those things can be so complicated. And I think, again, just being really, you know, thoughtful of all the ramifications. Is there something and, you know, I think a lot of what we do in our advocacy is find other support services and options to maybe come in to kind of 
uh, take away what some people feel are very singular decisions. My only option is I have this in, in the case you're talking about this 12 year old to take care like that is all I have. And so if we can do some preventable work and forward thinking work, that can be really tremendous. But sometimes it's not the case. And and sometimes we have to make those really tough calls and make those reports because the children are our clients, too. Right. We sometimes get a little bit into that space of I'm working with mom and if mom's OK, kid's going to be OK. And I think as we were talking to Christy Adams the other day, there's a lot of truth to that. If the non-offending parent is OK, the kids tend to do a little bit better. But we need to not forget about the the needs of the children in the cases. Can we talk a little bit about abuse and neglect? That's probably the most common. Sure. So when our first laws came on the books for the mandatory reporting of child abuse and neglect, the focus of the law was really on the parent-child relationship. Because the purpose of these laws, the mandatory reporting laws, is not necessarily to trigger a police investigation or a prosecution or a conviction or someone's going to go to jail or prison, although that might happen along with this other process. But the real thrust of the law was to get protective services in to that child. That's the mission of, you know, DCBS, Child Protective Services. And so, you know, we weren't looking at stranger danger. Somebody jumps out from behind a bush and sexually assaults a child. Obviously, that's a crime. It can be prosecuted. But you would assume that the parents would be protective in that situation and take the appropriate steps, you know, for their child. So what they were really looking at is when the person who we normally look to to protect the child isn't protecting the child, is abusing the child or neglecting the child, that's when the cabinet needs to step in and do something. So that's how the law started. And then it's sort of expanded beyond that um, so that it's not just a parent. It could be someone you know, who has custody of the child. So it could potentially be, say, you know, mom's boyfriend when he's left alone with the child to take care of the child. It could be, you know, someone who the child's been dropped off with, you know, another family member or friend or what have you. So anyone who's in a, you know, custodial or supervising relationship with that child. And then it's expanded even to beyond that to anybody who's in what they call a a position of authority or special trust. And so that piece of our law, which is sort of the newest, has grown out of the many cases that we've all read about in the news where someone who's a predatory pedophile has placed themselves in a position of trust. They could be, you know, an athletic coach or a volunteer or a youth minister or a counselor or something like that. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. But by reason of that position of trust uh, or authority that they have over the child, um, that they're able to abuse the child. And typically that's going to be sexual abuse. So in all of those situations, that's when a report has to be made to the cabinet. So again, so that protective services can be um, put in place for that child. And then, you know, when we talk about abuse and neglect, like, well, what does that actually mean? Because, you know, for one person, something that might look like a normal disciplinary action, you know, hitting a child repeatedly on the buttocks with a wooden spoon and leading, leaving bruises, that may be normal for that individual, like, that's how I was raised, you know, and then another individual may say, 
you know, you were screaming at your child and that's abuse, you know, that's abuse, you know, so there's this wide spectrum. So we do have legal definitions of abuse and neglect under our law, and it is pretty broad. There's multiple ways that a person could be said, oh, you know, you abused your child or you neglected your child. And what often hangs up our survivors that we work with is, again, not only that you have done something, you know, or, you know, failed to provide care, which would be neglect, but also if you just allow to be created a risk that your child could be hurt. And so that's when the cabinet may step in and say, well, there's physical violence in the home and the child could be caught in the crossfires or that, you know, we know that domestic violence in the home is not good for children. And so one of the pieces of this law talks about um, an emotional injury to the child. And a lot of people could say, well, anytime a child is around, you know, domestic violence in their home, that that's an emotional injury. And I think on the very broadest spectrum, that's certainly true. Legally, the way emotional injury is defined under our law, it has to rise to a pretty high level, something that a qualified mental health care professional would testify to, that the child's um, mental or psychological capacity um, has been substantially impaired. So again, you know, our advocates are in the trenches every day working with survivors and we see the trauma that they go through um, and what they have to deal with. There's many people out in the community that, you know, don't really have a good understanding of domestic violence and they may think, you know, oh, this happened. I need to report this to the cabinet because that, you know, something could happen to that child. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is that the you know, the outcome of that report is that nobody rides in on a white horse with the tall 10-gallon hat and a silver star on their chest and swoops that child up and takes them off to a perfect place of safety. Anytime a child is removed from their parents, it's horribly traumatic for them, even when the parent's not doing a great job as a parent. It's, um, I'm, I'm glad you said that earlier about, you know, sometimes what we see and what is um, either uh, typical in that family situation, but maybe not typical in another. It's something I see that often kind of catches up new advocates coming in um, because they want to be there and they want to be protective and they want to fix and they want to support. But we really have to check our own selves, our own judgment, our own bias about there's a tendency to think. I'm a parent and I know the best way to parent. You'll bump into that a little bit in shelter. Other moms in shelter will get sometimes frustrated at other moms in shelter because we all know how to parent best often. And sometimes what we see is not maybe the best parenting or mom needs a couple weeks to sort of, you know, focus on mom because she's just come into this program. And so can we kind of wrap around, you know, little one while she kind of gets back and gets grounded and, and begins to identify again who she is? Can we sort of put some of those things in place? Spanking, you know, we don't allow spanking in our program. Corporal punishment is not allowed in our program, but that's not really a cabinet reportable offense. Is that correct? I want to make sure that I'm saying that. So I think even though we disagree with it, it isn't always something that you would make a CPS report on. So you just really want to check that, I guess. I saw you well, giving me a look though. So give well, yeah, the, fight back on me on that. The fact that in in our school systems in Kentucky, paddling in many school district is still allowed as a punishment. 
So that's the problem with this particular law is that, you know, every, like you said, everybody brings their own experience to the table. And it is often hard sometimes, you know, to get DCBS to, you know, say with, you know, very um, black and white lines that, you know, this is child abuse, but this isn't. Um, it's all very fact-driven and it's all, you know, dependent on the context of what's going on. I mean, I've heard DCBS staff say, anytime you have any suspicion that it's child abuse or neglect, you know, call the hotline, report it. And if we don't think that it is, then you've done your duty and, you know, you can, you know, clear your conscience that you, you did the right thing. But I think it's a more nuanced than that. And at the same stroke, I would never want to tell somebody, don't, you know, don't follow your conscience and don't do what the law says, which is the law says if you have reason to believe that a child is abused or neglected or dependent, then you will report. And that applies. It's a universal mandatory reporting law. Everybody in the state of Kentucky has that obligation. I will say when we talked about this probably several weeks ago, and we were just sort of talking about the topics that we would be chatting about with the KCADV um, certification series, I was like, this is the thing that I think really kind of weighs on advocates. When to report, when not to report. Can we have some real clarity around that? And I still can hear you chuckling at me with my request. And so... I, I think, and I remember Maggie, you and I saying this of it, it is messy. It's hard. You need to really dig into it. Work with your fellow advocates, work with your director, trust your gut, trust your instincts, but do talk about it with other people because that call can have positive or very serious negative consequences. It is not clear. Things can be really, some things are very clear, but sometimes what we're seeing is not always clear. And I think the best thing that we can do for the families that we work with is again, we've got, especially in our shelter settings, we have an unbelievably privileged place to work with our families 24-7. So can we can we change some behaviors? Can we change some of the relationship? Can we support mom or dad with a healthier relationship with their child? Can we do some of those educational pieces? So can we make a difference for those one, two, three, four months that they might be staying with us? So we don't have to make that report and we can do some really good wraparound things because it it is really hard. I do want to, it was in the information, so I think it might be on the test. I'm not sure I didn't look, but the Commonwealth versus Allen, can we just talk about that a little bit? As much as I'm like, don't jump to make a report, jump, don't jump to make a report. I do think people need to know the consequences of how the importance of making a report when you feel it's needed. Yeah, so this law does have some teeth to it. It's actually a crime um, not to make a report when you have to, when you should be making a report. And it starts off as a, a class A misdemeanor, I think, or class B misdemeanor, but it can get up to a felony, you know, if there's repeated offenses. So the case that you're referring to is pretty old now because um, it occurred in the late 1990s. And that was a situation where three people were prosecuted and convicted for failing to make um, a report of child abuse. In that situation, it was in a school setting. And what happened was 
a student reported to a teacher that another teacher had, you know, committed an act of um, sexual abuse uh, against the student or against another student. And um, so the teacher was like, oh, I'll go talk to the um, high school guidance counselor about this situation, find out what we should do. So that teacher spoke to the counselor and they decided they both needed to go speak to the principal about the situation. And they did. And the principal said, I'll take care of it. And the principal never reported it. And then later on, that same teacher who had allegedly abused a student abused another student. And so when it came out that staff in the school had already been put on notice that this was happening, allegedly, you know, people were very upset, understandably. So the teacher and the guidance counselor and the principal were all charged with and convicted of um, failing to make this report. So it does have some teeth to it. It's not very common that people get charged with that. This, um, in one very bizarre case, I know of uh, the mother of the child was actually charged with failing to report child abuse because the father of the child had strangled the child in front of the mother. So, uh, you know, you just never know when a county attorney is going to decide I'm going to make, you know, a lesson here for the community and, you know, I'm going to bring charges. I know we talked to uh, several weeks ago when we were planning for this, one of the questions too, when someone divulges something, so you're having a, you know, a conversation with a survivor and you're the advocate and a discussion comes up of a past abuse. And I know there isn't a clear answer to this, like I, I know, but, but if someone if someone says this happened 10, 15 years ago, is there any time limit on when you're supposed to report information or do you kind of take into um, fact what's the current status of everybody now? Is everybody safe? Is everybody OK? Is like it, like is anybody vulnerable to the to the abuse continuing or what kinds of things would you be asking yourself whether you need to report when something happened maybe 10 years ago? Well, the statute doesn't have any time frame. It doesn't say, you know, child abuse or neglect that happened within the past five years or 10 years or one year, nothing like that. And over the years when we've, you know, asked the cabinet, well, what, how do you interpret this? You know, that you have reason to believe that a child is abused or neglected. They kind of, you know, waffle a little bit because in a way they want to hear about cases that are really old. If there's you know, reason to believe that maybe children now are still in danger. So, you know, sort of the classic example would be um, an adult survivor of child sexual abuse, you know, who's divulging that past history and then goes on to say, and the person who abused me, you know, has little children living in the home now. And so you're like, oh, that's icky. And so, you know, again, it's, it's not a great answer, but I think that one thing that you can always do is call the cabinet and and tell the person that's answering the hotline what the situation is. And then they will tell you, you know, whether or not that's something that's reportable. And if it's reportable, then they'll ask you for the, you know, information that you have. One thing to point out here is you do not have to be an investigator. 
you know, you're required to report the information that you have. And nobody says you have to go out and, and, you know, comb through the grass to find all, you know, addresses and names and birth dates and stuff like that. And so sometimes when people do call the hotline to make a report, um, they don't have enough information. And, and the person answering the hotline call will say, you know, well, thank you, but that that's not enough for us to, you know, take a report on that. It's one of the reasons um, some programs really try not to collect a whole lot of information, right? So as you're beginning to find things out, not that you, you again, don't want to support or um, report child abuse if it's happening. We certainly want to protect children, but sometimes if we just don't have the information, our hands are tied as to what all, you know, that we can share anyway. So a lot of our crisis calls somewhat come in a little bit anonymous. You know, we don't collect addresses always. We don't collect social security numbers and date of births and, and, address, or I think I said addresses, but we don't sometimes collect those identifying pieces um, until we make sure that that person knows that the information we're sharing and what our responsibilities are with that information. We really try to be somewhat transparent and thoughtful about that. And then if a CPS uh, report is open, and we touched on this already, but I really, really want to encourage folks that are listening in, you do have a great deal of Potentially, you could have a great deal of impact on how that case plan is put together. We certainly have seen, uh, I went to actually a DCBS kind of luncheon or an awards luncheon, and, and a person who was speaking from the um, University of Kentucky Social Work program was saying, you know, sometimes we put our newest people, our newest staff people in the investigative process, right? And so they're figuring out their language as well. So if we as professionals and professional advocates can help build that case plan, because sometimes there is a little bit of judgment in it. There's a little bias in it. There's a little bit, I've got to protect this kid and they lump kid from parent as opposed to again, non-offending parent who's been their protector all their life. And we separate them. So bringing that back together, looking for language that we're not trying to have the non-offending parent manage the behavior of the other. There can be no violence in the home. And that is my responsibility as a victim. So so just checking those statements and rewording and re-clarifying, having ending, if I complete this program, as opposed to just, you just need to go to parenting classes. Well, how many parenting classes do I have to go to? Is there an end? In, is it time limited? And is there an end in sight? So be really thoughtful as you're, as you're kind of opening up into this territory and you're going through somebody that has an open seat. CPS case, there is a lot of way you can kind of nudge that and you can advocate for that parent in that process. Yes. And like I said earlier, there probably aren't going to be any other people standing in that parent's corner. So if you can do that for someone, you're going to really help them a lot. Yeah. And it's a great way to kind of educate system too, right? So advocates are always there, you know, for the, for the survivor that's in front of them. But we sometimes like to work a little bit more on the macro level. So here's a great way that if you can build a relationship with that caseworker to appoint and educate that, the next person that they're coming in contact with might have a better experience, even though you might not be working that case at all, but they may take that information as they're building their next goal plan. So use that to plant the seed of how the cabinet can better respond to the to the um, men, women, and children that they're working with. The last little bit, and then we're going to wrap up, is um, duty to warn. Can we just talk really briefly on responsibilities of duty to warn? Who's responsible for that? And when do we do that? 
Well, before we get to duty to okay, warn, okay. I'd also like to just mention that we do have another uh, universal mandatory reporting law in Kentucky, and that is reporting the abuse, neglect, or exploitation of a vulnerable adult. And so if in the course of your work, uh, you come across a situation where it's an adult, so it's someone over the age of 18, because child abuse and neglect is reported under a different statute. But so even once somebody attains adulthood, they may have a mental or physical disability that makes them unable to be protective of themselves. And if they are being abused or neglected or financially exploited, that needs to be reported um, to the cabinet. And you can use the same hotline number. There's also an online portal to report both child abuse and neglect and um, vulnerable adult abuse and neglect. And you know, this is something that I think a lot of people may think of as, you know, sort of like elder abuse. You know, so many elderly people do become so vulnerable to, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial exploitation, neglect. But it could be anybody of any age as long as they're an adult. And so um, I don't know how often advocates encounter those types of situations, but they are reportable. And as for the duty to warn in Kentucky, we do have a law that mandates certain qualified mental health care professionals or people providing mental health care to report when uh, an individual makes a credible threat that they're going to hurt another identified person or do some violent act. And I think a lot of people somehow get the idea that everybody has that duty to, to warn, and that's not true. Um, so under our law, it's going to be confined to like psychiatrists, psychologists, a physician providing mental health care services, nurses that are providing mental health care services, and then all the various forms of uh, certified counselors that we have, licensed clinical social workers and family and marriage um, therapists, art therapists, pastoral counselors, etc. So for your average advocate at a domestic violence program, probably this law is not going to apply to you. So you need to be very careful about what you do in a situation where someone is either threatening to hurt themselves or threatening to hurt another person or go commit a violent act. And you are allowed to um, work through that situation and possibly share information with whoever needs to know, whether that's maybe the police if something's going down right then and there in shelter, or maybe it's a um, an emergency medical person, you know, like who has to respond to someone who's threatening suicide or what have you. But you always want to work that through with your supervisors, your directors, and not just shoot from the hip and say, oh, you know, this person made a threat. I need to pick the phone up and call the police and turn them in. We're protectors, advocates to a degree, and we like to support and we like to support certainly the person who's in front of us, but also we don't take threats lightly. We come from a domestic violence, intimate partner violence background where we take words and and statements and threats and harassment again very seriously. But just as we screen in or evaluate a person's experience with intimate partner violence, we often look at intention. We often look at frequency. We 
We look at patterns that have occurred. And so I think sometimes you do have to sort of look at the nuances. Was this threat a, you know, a threat that was just sort of set in the heat of the moment? We're working with people on trauma. Their their language can sometimes really ratchet up and sometimes ratchet back down. And so are people just expressing their their feelings and their frustrations? Or does this person have a viable means in a way and intention to carry out what they're saying? I don't mean to say that people are therapists and professionals to be able to figure all of that out, but I think it's something to build into the equation. Are we just mad at the moment, you know, and oh, I could just do this. We've all made those statements. Or did we walk away from that going, that person's really capable of carrying out what they just said. And I have a pretty strong belief they might if given the opportunity. So I love that you said, get with your people, get with your director, get with your folks and really process through it. So you're not just shooting from the hip because you can really cause some damage down the road if you, if you act incorrectly. Absolutely. I think that's it. So we'll be back in a little bit talking about our next Legal Basics Part 2. But you have been tuned into KCADB Certification Series, Legal Basics Part 2, Section 1.